Thank you for singing out. It's uh, a great joy to my heart every time I hear God's people singing these glorious truths. And uh, thank you. I want to invite you to turn once again to Revelation chapter 11. The text before us contains some rather puzzling and disturbing details. As, I, as, as we read this, I, I ask these questions. Why would John be told to go measure the temple? And why the inner court, but, but not the outer court? And who are these two witnesses that we see here? And what's the meaning of this great authority that they're given? And of the tragic death they must suffer. Why are their bodies left in the streets for three and a half days while those who dwell on the earth celebrate their deaths, even exchanging gifts in observance of that, what they consider glorious development? But that's disturbing to, to, to visualize these three, these two dead bodies for three and a half days and people walking by and rejoicing. So what are we to make of these very specific periods of time, three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days? And what of this dramatic resurrection these two witnesses experience? And of the earthquake that's described at the end that kills many and strikes terror into the hearts of the rest. One of my commentators named Richard Brooks, he is the, wrote the Wellwin Commentary, said this is one of the most important chapters in the book of Revelation. And it's also the most difficult. I say that on the front end, so you'll pray for me while I try to unpack this. But he goes on to say this. He says, further, John is receiving all this material in a vision, so we continue to be faced with symbols that are to be interpreted, not with language that is to be taken literally. Very important. We recognize this vision is symbolic, and it's to be taken symbolically, not literally. And that's an important principle for interpreting most of the book of of Revelation. The language is symbolic. The numbers uh, are frequently symbolic. The, The symbols are symbolic. The characters in these visions are symbolic. That doesn't in any way undercut our commitment to the accuracy, the authority, the inerrancy of Scripture. But we want to make sure that we don't try to make Scripture say something a writer never intended for it to say. There are a lot of passages in the Scriptures that should not be taken literally. Many places we find symbolic language, and certainly in apocalyptic literature, which Revelation is, that is the case. So, as we look at this text, we'll, we'll find there are a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. I'm going to point some of those out this morning. And, and recognize again, this is not a literal chronology that one day a certain thing will happen and then it will continue up until uh, another certain day. But rather, it's, it's part of this grand story of God's work in his church from the time of Jesus' return to heaven and, uh, until he comes back and takes us to himself. We've talked about these cycles of uh, revelation, uh, the, the seven seals, now the seven trumpets. And that interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal 
showing that the saints of God are protected in heaven and that, that there are those from every people and tribe and language and nation around the throne of God worshiping rejoicing in the victory and the triumph of the Lamb. That's heaven. That's, that's after the new heaven and the new earth have been established and Christ has conquered. That's after the final judgment. And yet Revelation continues with cycle after cycle. So here, as I said a moment ago, we have another interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And again, this text, this particular passage describes God's protection of his people. I entitled my message this morning, Safe in the Savior's Arms. Speaking of us, God's people, his church. And the Lord employs two images, the images of the temple and of the two witnesses. So let's look, first of all, for a moment at the measuring of the temple, which takes place in the first two verses, and then secondly, in the two witnesses in verses 3 to 14. So John is instructed, we see in verse 1 and 2, to measure the temple. I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. This cannot be the actual physical temple. Because if John is given a measuring rod and said, go measure the temple, and he were actually to go to Jerusalem, what he would find would be rubble. Because the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed 20 years earlier when the Romans once and for all laid waste to the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. It's also not pointing to some future event when the temple is going to be rebuilt and the sacrifices would be reinstituted. Why in the world would the Lord reinstitute the sacrifices of the first temple when Hebrews clearly says those sacrifices are never to be repeated? But the New Testament is very, very clear. We are the dwelling place of God. We are the temple. True believers in Jesus Christ, we are his holy temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Or 2 Corinthians 6.16, We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's not just in heaven, that's now. As we gather this morning, we are the temple. It's not the building. The building is a nice room. It's a room we ought to treat with respect because it's a stewardship of the resources that God's people have, have given to provide this place for worship. But this room is not sacred. We call it a sanctuary, not necessarily, not meaning that it's a sacred place. It's a place of refuge where we gather together and take refuge and worship our God. But we are the church. We are the temple. We are the dwelling place of God. That's the consistent emphasis throughout the New Testament, and it's true in the book of Revelation as well. In fact, it's interesting, if you go to chapters 4 and 5, and you don't need to turn there now, but we find these glorious pictures of the throne room of God. And in chapter 4, God the Father is worshipped by all these uh, beings, uh, thousands upon thousands. And in chapter 5, uh, the Lord Jesus is worshipped, again, by all of these heavenly beings. At no point is that throne room called the temple. That language is reserved for us. We are the temple of the living God. But secondly, he's told to measure the altar. Now, Outside of the inner court was the altar of sacrifice. But inside the inner court was the altar of incense. And we've talked about this earlier. 
where there was this altar of incense that, that Revelation says are the prayers of the saints. So John is, is told to measure this, this devotion of the people of God, the true prayers of the saints, which rise up to the Lord as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. And then thirdly, he's instructed to measure or to count those who worship there. True believers, the true church, the true worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says measure them, he means mark them out. Not just to identify them, but it's actually a measuring of protection, just like the sealing of the Spirit back in Revelation chapter 7. So, as we saw in previous chapters, trumpet after trumpet is blown, and catastrophe after catastrophe comes upon this earth, and people are, are, are thrown into chaos, and many are killed. But the people of God are preserved safe in the hands of our Lord. He is able to protect his people. Now, this past Wednesday, we had a discussion about our last week's message. And I I repeated the question that, that I asked, in light of all of the chaos and the evil and the wickedness that's all around us, in light of all of the, uh, all of the things that make it look like we're on the losing side, can God keep Jesus' little flock safe as they stand it seems defenseless in the crossfire. And I asked that question again, and, and, and Rachel, I hope I don't embarrass you. Rachel gave a brilliant answer. Rachel Ferrier, she said, it depends on your definition of safe. Because there's no promise of physical safety. In fact, we are told to expect persecution. We're, expect, we're told to expect that we would suffer for the name of Christ. We find in Revelation chapter 6, martyrs who had been slain for the testimony of the Lamb. And so the concept of physical safety for God's people here in this life, basically John would say to you, don't count on it. But rather, they're overcomers. Remember in Revelations 2 and 3, the seven churches, over and over, he said, to the overcomers, I will give these glorious promises and gifts. They are kept safe from the enemy's evil designs to destroy their faith, to destroy them spiritually. But we as the church, the temple of God, the true worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will overcome the world and we will share in the victory of our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be kept safe. So John is told, measure out the temple, the altar, those who worship there. There's a spiritual protection for the people of God. There's nothing in heaven or earth, no created being, nothing anywhere that could ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. We know him. He holds us in his hand, and no one can pluck us out. There's an assurance, a confidence that ought to course through our veins with those promises. But I want you to notice, secondly, what John is told not to measure. Specifically, he is told, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, it specifically says. And it's curious that God would give him such a specific instruction until we understand who is symbolized in this outer court. The reason... John is given here in the text is the outer court is given over to the nations and the nations will trample them for 42 months. There are a lot of theories out there. Uh, I mentioned earlier that this is a challenging text to understand rightly. I think the best explanation of the outer courts represents those who profess 
to be Christians. But in fact, they're spurious believers. They're tares that Jesus told us would be among the wheat. They're those who give lip service to the Lord. They honor him with their lips, Isaiah says, but their hearts are far from him. And the Lord tells John, don't mark them out. They will not be protected. They will be trampled by the world. Now, there are some commentators who say, no, what this is, this is uh, the recognition that God protects the church, but there will be some who will be trampled and persecuted by the world. Some true believers that will suffer persecution. I don't think that's what God is speaking about here. I don't think he's talking about physical persecution. I think he's talking about the spiritual destruction that comes on those who profess to be one thing, but in reality they're another. And they're seduced by the world, and they suffer the spiritual trampling of their souls. Things are not always what they seem, are they? Those who are spurious in their faith, who compromise with the world, it's not that they'll be hated or despised by their, for their hypocrisy, not at all. Uh, the world will love them. The world will celebrate their open-mindedness. They'll, they'll, they'll say, this is the kind of religious folk we can put up with. And in so doing, the world will feed their pride and trample them spiritually, inoculating them, as it were, from truly recognizing their spiritual condition. In his letter to the seven churches, you remember Jesus identified spurious believers inside the church. He spoke of false apostles. He spoke of the Nicolaitans. He spoke of some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who introduced immorality into the children of Israel. He spoke of Jezebel, that woman, that prophetess Jezebel in the church, also who was introducing immorality and defending it, compromising with the pagan culture around them, kind of go along to get along, embracing contemporary cultural norms. That's the outer court. They might claim to be residents of the holy city. They might claim to be children of the living God, but they're actually not truly part of his temple. And our Lord says the nations will trample this this holy city for 42 months. Let me give you a little math lesson, okay? All right, put on your math brain for just a minute, kids. 42 months. How many months in a year? 12. How many months make up three years? 36. What's left over? Six months. Took 42. So 42 months is three and a half years. Now, if you you drop down a little bit, you'll see 1,260 days. Well, how many days in a month? Typically 30. 1,260 days divided by 30. Guess what that number comes to? 42 months. Three and a half years. In chapter 12, we find reference to time, times, and half a time. Meaning one year plus two years plus a half year. Again, three and a half years. We find this this designation repeated over and over again. What does it represent? Well, Vern Poitras takes it to mean a limited time of distress and intense conflict between God's people and their opponents. He and others point out that three and a half years is half of what? Seven. The number of perfection. And we find the designation later, 7,000 years, 
And of course, thousand is not limited to 1,000 finitely. It's a multitude. So when we find 7,000 are killed, we're talking about a vast number of people. You see the numbers, the way they work in the book of Revelation. They're symbolic, but they mean something. And so this three and a half years means it's, it's, it's limited in its scope, in its extent. And I'm convinced by the arguments that say this three and a half years in the book of Revelation points to the time from when Jesus ascended to heaven, the Spirit is poured out on this church, and the time Jesus comes in, returns. Some have called that the inter-advent period, the time between Jesus' advent and his return. Some have called it the age of the church. But I'm convinced that what we're talking about are the events that occur throughout church history up until the return of the Lord Jesus and the inauguration of the new heaven and the new earth. So the lesson here of measuring the temple, that true believers will be kept safe. They will ultimately overcome the enemy. That hypocrites who might name the name of the Lord Jesus, and yet in their hearts they are not truly submitted to him, they'll be exposed. And they'll suffer the spiritual destruction that those of the world will endure. So it's a warning to each one of us. Make sure you're the faith, Scripture says. Be sure that your profession is genuine and not merely pretense. So that's the lesson of the temple. Let's look at the lesson of the two witnesses for a few moments. In verses 3 and following, we find, first of all, their identity. Verse 3, I will grant the authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days or three and a half years clothed in sackcloth. Well, who are they? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, there are some who interpret this text as a literal two prophets who come back during a literal period of time imminently before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they work all manner of incredible miracles, striking their opponents dead until the beast, Satan, rises and puts them to death for a brief period of time. One popular preacher back in the 1980s who held that view uh, commented on the fact that it says the entire world will see their resurrection. He says, I'm not real sure when that's going to happen, but how's the entire world see it? Well, we have live news feeds that everybody in the world can see these days. And he said, I'm not sure who the anchor man's going to be in that report, but I hope it's Dan Rather. Now, some of you, if you're younger, you don't know who Dan Rather is, but he was like the most famous uh, anchorman of his day, considered he is the epitome of truth until he was exposed to be falsifying some of his reports. Uh, But again, I don't believe we are to interpret the book of Revelation in light of current events. I believe we're to interpret the book of uh, the current events, the things we see around us in light of the book of Revelation. And we see the same things happening over and over and over again. Sometimes intensifying, sometimes less intense until the final victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he identifies these two witnesses also as two olive trees and two lampstands. Now, if we're to take that literally, you've got two witnesses You assume they're people, but they're also trees and they're also pieces of temple furniture. Which is it? Clearly, you've got to interpret two of those, at least, as symbolic. Why not all three? Well, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 4, because that's where we find the origin of this language, of these symbols. 
Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah is really close to the end of the Old Testament. In fact, it's next to the last book. It's right before Malachi. So if you come to Matthew, go back two books and you'll be at Zechariah. Chapter 3. Excuse me, chapter 4. Zechariah 4. An angel who talked with me came again and woke me, and a man, or like a man who was awakened out of his sleep, and he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. See, the illusion we find in Revelation chapter 11 is clearly taken from this Old Testament passage. It says two lampstands instead of one, but that's, that's irrelevant because John oftentimes, uh, the details are slightly different, but clearly they're illusions pointing to the fact that it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's not by human skill, power, or endeavor. It's by the power of the spirit of God that the victory is won. But he still hasn't told us who they are. So jump down to verse 12 if you would. Or verse 11, I said to him, what are these olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, or he said to me, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the gold oil is poured? And there you have two golden pipes. Maybe that's the two lampstands. He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. He said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. There you have it. The two anointed ones, the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. Now, who are they though? I'm convinced they don't represent two specific individuals, but they rather represent the church in its witness to the world of the reality and the power of the gospel through all ages. They're clothed in sackcloth, meaning their message is a call to repentance, just like John the Baptist. And the reason there are two, there are many reasons given. One I think is interesting is that two witnesses were were required to establish a faithful testimony in a court of law. But here they are, these two witnesses, they prophesy for three and a half years, 1,260 days, which again is the entire church age. So in this vision which John sees, he, he sees this vision of the church witnessing to the world throughout the ages. And the power they're given is described in verses 5 and 6. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. They're given incredible power and authority. But do you recognize these illusions? Do you remember Elijah? The prophet? In the time of Ahaziah, who was the son of Ahab, he was a wicked king in Israel. Elijah rebuked the king. And Ahaziah sent 50 men to arrest Elijah. He realized Elijah has power, okay? So one or two guys ain't going to be enough. I'm going to send 50 men. And Elijah called down fire from heaven and 
they were all consumed. Just like we find in Revelation 11. So Ahaziah says, wow, he sends 50 more men. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven and they're all consumed. And then Ahaziah calls 50 more men. And the, the lead, captain comes and just kind of crawls up to Elijah and says, listen, please, please, please don't call down fire from heaven. And kill me and my men. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah, to Ahaziah's father Ahab, he, he declared to him that it would not rain. And for three and a half years, it didn't rain. There was famine in the land, and it was a desperate time. And James tells us he prayed once again, and rain was restored. But it only resumed when Elijah prayed that it would. That's what we see happening here, this allusion to the prophetic power given to Elijah. But also, what about Moses? Remember, Moses was told to strike the river Nile with his staff, and the Nile River turned to blood. And we find that. They turn the waters to blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. And we know the other nine plagues that fell upon Egypt. So are we to take these descriptions as literal or symbolic? Again, I'm convinced it's symbolic. These, these, the, the, the witness of the church is carried out in the authority and in the spirit of Elijah and of Moses. And it's not that we have power to call down fire from heaven. Remember the John and James? They earned their nickname, Sons of Thunder, when those who derided the Lord Jesus said, should we call down fire from heaven? And Jesus rebuked them, but he gave them the nickname, Sons of Thunder. But rather, we have the authority to proclaim the good news, to call men to repent. Not through great signs and miracles, but through the power of the gospel. Turn with me to Romans 1, if you would. Romans 1. This is one of those verses that every Christian should memorize. There's a lot of verses we ought to memorize. We should know the word. But Romans 1, 16. So we'll read 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God. Not to consume our enemies and destroy them, but rather to rescue them, to redeem them for eternity. In, excuse me, in, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, The weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That doesn't mean that every Christian is going to win every debate with an unbeliever. It means God's message, his gospel will be effective where he sends it to those whom he has chosen to call to himself. And the gates of hell cannot stop the effectual call of the Spirit of God through the proclaimed gospel of his church. The power of our testimony is not in our reasoning. It's not in our refinement. It's in the power of the gospel itself. That is our power. That is our divine authority. And Jesus said the very gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell are not an offensive weapon coming to attack us. The gates of hell are that, uh, that fortress trying to keep us out of 
the lives of those in Satan's capture. And we are given power by the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ and by his spirit to knock down those strongholds and bring truth to God's chosen people. You know, Jesus promised his disciples that they would do greater things than he did. Not that they would walk on water farther than he did or they would raise more people from the dead. Rather, when Jesus left this earth, the number of followers was relatively small. But the gospel would go forth through his disciples and through the church and a countless host of people from every tribe and language and people and nation would be gathered into the fold, into the temple, into the church, and ultimately brought into the very presence of God. The church has power in the world. But let's be honest. We are comfortable. And we have so little faith. We're comfortable. And we have so little ambition. William Carey said, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. Do you have spiritual ambition? Do you have kingdom ambition? I read a time management book years ago that asked the question, if you knew you would die in six months, what would you do differently? Christian, if you knew you had six months on this earth, what conversations would you have? What truths would you proclaim? If you're not a Christian, maybe you're a pretended Christian. If you knew you had six months, what would you do to remedy your situation before the time would come? How urgent is my burden to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? How urgent is my church's burden to expand God's kingdom? Now, I want to make a a side application for just a moment here. We rejoice this week in the overturning of Roe versus Wade. We rejoice in that ruling. The Supreme Court said it was based on flimsy constitutional law. I agree with that. Morally, it opened the door for the slaughter of some 63 million unborn babies over the past 50 years. And so we rejoice as the people of God that this travesty has finally been overturned. Now, that is cause for rejoicing. We have prayed for years. We have, uh, we have exercised our, uh, our, our, our rights and opportunities to seek to bring about the changes that need to happen. But please hear me. Do not equate the overturning of Roe versus Wade or any law that might be passed as a triumph of the gospel. It's not. Abortion is a terrible evil in our day. Roe v. Wade did not eliminate abortion. It gave states the right to regulate or make laws against it, which I believe constitutionally is what should have happened. But some of the states are going to make abortion safe, and, or excuse me, abortion legal, and, and, and not safe, legal, and rare, just legal. And they're going to proliferate and continue to do so. The church should speak out. And we should do so with a unified voice against evil in our day. And we need to continue to do so because the issues are still there. And we need to do whatever is legitimately, biblically in our power to bring an end to such evil. But as we seek to put an end to all injustice, to all wickedness, 
recognize that immoral people who are yet unredeemed are still subject to the final judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have not saved a single soul for eternity simply by changing legislation. We may save unborn babies and give them an opportunity to live in this life, but we've not done anything to transform the hearts and lives of men and women, boys and girls, for the life to come. That's the triumph of the gospel. The gospel is what saves men and women, boys and girls, from the penalty of sin and delivers them safe into heaven for all eternity. That is our primary mission. Yes, there are other battles to fight, other campaigns to be involved in, but we must never, ever, ever lose sight of the mission of the church, which is to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We love to think, as we look at these two witnesses who have the power to testify and the power to overcome their enemies, that the church is going to be characterized by this unbroken string of victories, from victory unto victory. We march forward, but that is not going to be the case. We see in verses 7 through 10, their defeat. We read that when they have finished their testimony, important phrase, which we'll come back and look at in a moment. When they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Couldn't be much plainer than that. And it's worse. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that's symbolically called Sodom in Egypt where the Lord was crucified, which of course is Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. No, 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 no. Don't move that body. Don't cover it up. Don't bury it. Leave it there. Let the flies, let the crows, let the vultures do their thing. Let everybody see just how what big losers they are. And they celebrate and they give gifts to one another as if this was something truly wondrous. And the reason they hated them so much is because the message of the prophet tormented them. Their conscience were pricked by the preaching of the gospel. They were made uncomfortable in their sin when they were exposed for, for just how wicked their sin is. As they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, they say, our torment is over. Little do they know. It's going to intensify beyond all imagination. So we see that the church is not temporally and physically protected from all our enemies. We're spiritually protected. We will overcome. We will remain faithful to the very end, God's word says. But there is a time where the church will be persecuted. Now, I want you to notice when their testimony was finished, God regulates when that happens. As long as God is pleased to allow someone to put forward his message, he is untouchable. But we don't know what that day is. And some, the Lord allows decades of faithful service. Some are snuffed out very quickly. I think of those who went to the Aka Indians, Jim Elliott and his compatriots, Nate Saint and others, and they were killed as soon as they arrived before they had a chance to communicate anything of the gospel and celebrated 
And yet the Lord used even their sacrifice, their death, as others, Jim Elliot's own wife, Elizabeth Elliot, came and brought the gospel and brought redemption to that tribe. But the time will come that witnesses are killed. Only when their testimony is complete. Not one moment sooner. It says the beast will come up from the abyss. He will attack. He will wage war. And he will kill them. That's the first time we find the beast mentioned, by the way, in the book of Revelation. Not the last. And we'll look more at that. But basically, he's saying that Satan is allowed to raise his ugly head at at times and to send his servants out to wage war against the church. And at times, they appear to win. So we have this gruesome scene these bodies laying in the street. The great city, symbolically called Sodom in Egypt. Sodom, of course, because of the great evil was there. God destroyed it. Egypt, because of their enslavement of the people of God, were subject to plagues and their army was destroyed. Jerusalem, which crucified our Lord. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem and he prophesied its destruction And in 70 A.D. The Roman army came through and laid waste to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. It's never been rebuilt. I don't believe this, this event is describing something that's going to happen at a point in time in the future. I believe it represents all opposition of the world to the faithful witness of the church throughout the ages. And these two witnesses are faithful, is the faithful witness of the church, the corporate witness of God's church who were opposed by those enemies of Christ through the ages. John Calvin was very famous as a reformer during the early 1600s or late 1500s in the Reformation. And I'm sure you're probably aware that Calvin carried out most of his ministry in Geneva, but did you know that he was not Swiss? He was actually French. And Calvin's, a significant portion of his ministry, he trained over a hundred French preachers to go back into France, which was under the stronghold grip of Roman Catholicism and the Counter-Reformation opposing the gospel. He sent a hundred trained preachers into France who were having quite an impact until the government killed them all. The Roman Catholic Church thought they had extinguished the gospel Influence for all time. They're wrong. The church will never fail in its mission. But when the church or when the world succeeds for a time in silencing our witness, they rejoice. And they're so pernicious that they even see it as an occasion to give gifts and to celebrate. And so here we have these bodies lying in the street for three and a half days. There's that half of seven once again. This limited period of time. And it points to the final victory that the church will experience. It points to the fact that that celebration on the part of the world is only temporary. And the final victory we find described in verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, these two dead witnesses, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Again, we find these repeating cycles. This is a, a foretelling of the final resurrection of the saints. The martyrs who have been killed for the Lord will be fully vindicated. The, the, the enemies of the Lord will be thoroughly confounded. They will watch as the people of God are called by the Lord up into heaven. So these two witnesses, the faithful church, are taken up in a cloud. 
Reminds us of the language we find in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 7, 17, where Paul says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The vision John is describing here is the final resurrection of the church, of the saints, when Jesus calls his people to himself, and so we will always be with the Lord. And the enemies of the Lord will watch, and they will be confounded. And so we read these dreadful words in verses 13 and 14. And at that hour, not three and a half days later, that very hour, because they had that moment even. There was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Again, this is pointing to that final judgment that would come at the end. Back in 2004, there was a massive earthquake in the Indian Ocean. It was 9.1 on the Richter scale, the most violent earthquake that's ever been measured. They said some, I think, uh, I think it was hundreds of miles of the, of the crust of the earth shifted. Just this massive, massive shift. 40 feet of, of, of earth floor was raised. The earthquake lasted for 10 minutes, which is unbelievable for an earthquake. Now, there wasn't any, any buildings there to tumble or anything like that. So it seemed like nobody was harmed until this massive tsunami ensued and began to spread from that epicenter at a rate of 500 miles per hour. And that tsunami hit island after island and nation after nation. And in the end, 12 nations were struck by these tidal waves that were a result of this earthquake and over 300,000 people lost their lives. My sister was in northern Thailand, about 800 miles from Phuket, where the tsunami hit. It was Christmas morning. We were having Christmas dinner, and she called us on the phone and said, I just felt an earthquake. Now, she's 800 miles away from Phuket, and that was hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the earthquake, and she felt it there. And nothing bad happened. She said, this was kind of spooky. An hour and a half later, we began to get reports. And over the next number of hours, more and more reports of people killed from that massive earthquake. Let me tell you. In fact, the History Channel says of that earthquake, it was, the, the, it was more powerful than thousands of atomic bombs going off below the Earth's crust, below the ocean. But nothing, nothing in human history, whether brought about by man, we think of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, or natural catastrophes brought about by the Lord. Nothing compares with that final catastrophe, that final cataclysm, that final destructive earthquake that will bring an end to the, new, to the old earth and the old heaven and usher in the new heaven and the new earth. And it tells us 7,000 people were killed. I don't believe that's a definite finite number. I believe it's saying a vast multitude of people were killed. And the rest who remained were terrified. And they gave glory to the God of heaven. There are many unbelievers who would see this resurrection of the just. 
And they would see this earthquake and this massive carnage all around them. And we'd love to think as they were giving glory to God, they would actually repent. And they would call out to the Lord Jesus for mercy. But John tells us, he tells us they will be terrified, they'll give glory to God, but it won't be one of repentance. It will be their agonizing confession that they were wrong, that they had been suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness, and they will be compelled against their will, as it were, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that confession will not be the glad celebration of triumph in Christ. That will be reserved for us in heaven before the throne. It will be guilt-ridden. It will be shame-saturated. It will be a, a compelled confession for those who can no longer deny what their hearts really truly knew all along. And that is, God is on his throne. And we must give an account to him. Jesus is Lord. And if he is not our Redeemer, he will be our judge. Next week, we're going to look at the final trumpet and the triumph that it depicts in heaven. But let me, let me just quickly draw a few conclusions. First of all, if you're a Christian this morning, if you truly are in Christ, you're part of that temple, you're one of the true worshipers, are you secure in his protection? Are you confident that he will keep you safe and that he will get you safely home? Now, again, as our sister Rachel said the other day, it's important we have the right definition of the word safe. It doesn't mean safe from the attacks of the enemy. It means safe in the arms of our Lord Jesus, and nothing can separate us from his love. It's been said that our witness is most powerful when the bullets are flying. And that wasn't in the Bible because they didn't have bullets back then. But the willingness and the faithfulness of the saints of God to suffer for the name has been compelling evidence, powerful testimony to people throughout the ages to convince them that Jesus Christ is worth living for and indeed even worth dying for. So let me ask you, are you confident, Christian, that you are secure in the Lord Jesus? But secondly, I want to ask you to, each of you consider carefully, am I in that inner temple or am I one that's in the outer court? Do I honor the Lord with my lips, but my heart is far from him? Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, on the contrary, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These are all three miraculous manifestations that would appear to be, surely God must be with them. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, we cannot be saved by our works, but we can be condemned by our works. We can, we can be condemned by our lawless deeds. Because when a, a man or woman, boy or girl, when his heart is transformed, he turns away from lawlessness. That doesn't mean we begin to live perfectly. It means we begin to repent sincerely. But Jesus warns that on that day there will be many who will be self-deceived, who will cry out and say, Lord, Lord, and he will reject them. It's been said that when we get to heaven, we might be shocked by who we find there, and we might also be shocked by who we don't find there. Solemn warning. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8 says, today, 
If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Referring to the rebellion of Israel in the book of Exodus. There will be a day when grace will not be extended any longer. Every eye will see and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but not a single heart will be changed on that day. And if that's so, what ought you to do on this day? But cry out to the Lord. And then I'd ask you this finally. Are you confident in the power of the gospel? Do you cherish a holy kingdom ambition in your hearts? Do you believe that that the gospel really is the power of God for the salvation? Or is there a part of you that is kind of embarrassed? Because the world around us heaps so much scorn and so much hatred and so much animosity on the idea that there is righteousness and unrighteousness, sin and obedience, that there's a God in heaven to whom we must give an account and who will judge the living and the dead. They mock and they think it's utter nonsense. Is there a part of you that sort of shrinks back? Or is there a part of you, all of you in fact, that boldly says, no, this is, this is the truth. This is the bad news that makes the good news so inexpressibly sweet. See, we all have a professed theology. That's what we profess to believe. That's what we say we believe. But we also live by a functional theology. What is your functional theology the way you actually live or function, say about what you profess. Do you believe, truly believe in the power of the gospel? Christian, are you looking forward to that glorious day? When you hear his voice calling you from heaven saying, come up here and you, along with all the true saints of God, will rise to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the air and we forever will be with the Lord. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.